is the Angel Next Door podcast, where we will talk about all things angel investing, what it is, who does it, how do we find them, what does it mean to invest in an early stage company. If you have ever wondered how you can affect the change you want to see in the world, then tune in to learn more. I'm excited to share this bonus episode of The Angel Next Door with you as I interview U.S. Congressman Byron Donalds. Congressman Donalds serves as the U.S. Representative for Florida's 19th Congressional District, and he's been there since 2021. His district serves most of the heart of Southwest Florida, including Fort Myers and Naples. The Congressman and I are going to talk about why angel investing is important to give everyone an equal shot at building wealth, as well as legislation in government related to angel investing. Many people don't realize just how active the Angel Capital Association is when it comes to public policy. The ACA is deeply active on the federal legislative and regulatory fronts and helps safeguard and galvanize the rights of American angel investors so that we can protect the foundation that fuels the startup economy. We will talk about the congressman's view of these topics, and you'll also get an inside look on how he became part of the U.S. House of Representatives. Enjoy the show. Congressman Donalds, welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? Congressman, thank you so much for being on the show. Tell us a little bit about your personal journey and what prompted you to run. I mean, well, that's kind of a longer story. I was uh, in insurance at the time, and this was back during a financial collapse. And so my firm asked me to do research for our clients because our clients were international pension plans. And so during that research, that's really the first time I started paying attention to politics, frankly, ever. And I guess you could say I kind of got the bug. And so I really started learning about politics and political philosophy. And people in my area asked me to run when uh, this congressional seat came open the first time. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was I was passionate. So I ran and I, I didn't win, but it was a, really a great experience. And then from there, I kind of stayed involved politically. And then what I ended up doing was running for the state legislature in 2016. I served in the Florida legislature for four years and I was actually ready to go back to the business world. By that time, I become a financial advisor. I had my own book of business. Things were going well. And I was I was pretty much prepared to leave politics. But then our congressional seat came open again and people asked me to run again. And I thought about it and put put a team together. And now I'm a member of Congress. So it's it's not one of those stories, I guess, where it was my dream from when I was a kid or I was in student government or I worked on the Hill before. It was really more of a passion I didn't know I had. And, you know, just really fortunate to have, you know, good people just come into my orbit to make this a possibility. What a great story. And thank you for your service. I wish there were more people who have a passion like you and would get involved. So tell us a little bit more about angel investing in your community. As a financial planner, did you come across many angel investors? uh, Some of my clients did. I mean, the bigger ones did. They had a little bit of capital that they could deploy. And so, you know, they they would enjoy it. Like I was aware of the investment, but if they did it through somebody else, 
because in my firm, we basically did just stock investing for them. So if they wanted to do that, they they basically did that with another individual or they did it with a private placement group or whatever the case might be. So I think that the key thing that I've always kind of felt is it's really, it's a very interesting way to try to get into shaping the future of so many companies. Like people look at Facebook slash Meta now. And they say, oh, my gosh, you know, it's, it's just this massive conglomerate company. But what most people don't know is that it started with angel investing. You know, Mark Zuckerberg didn't really have the wherewithal to go to the street. So he had to just get people who wanted to invest in a fledgling idea. And I actually, if you I think that in the world of investing, that's the that's the way a lot of people who amassed like Uber wealth. A lot of it has happened in the angel investor space or in the venture capital space, whatever the case might be. And I think that broader market returns are about growing a nest egg and taking a nest egg and savings and growing that to be larger. But the, but the real dynamic shifts in wealth, it really comes from angel investing. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, if we are going to start to bridge a wealth gap, we have to get more people writing checks as angel investors who look like those founders that we're trying to support. I've been working with many groups for the last like six, seven years, just trying to get more funding to women and people of color because they get less than 2% if you're a woman and less than a fraction of 1% if you're a person of color. It's really, it really is definitely needed. For marginalized communities, people at the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum, having multiple pathways to try to build wealth is 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 important. Yes. I think that sometimes what the federal government tries to do is protect people and and I think, you know, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, they're really big into consumer protections, but the thing that people have to understand is that there's no pathway to gain wealth if you're protected from failure and from loss. Like even some of the largest names in, in the world right now, a bunch of those guys and ladies, they failed multiple times before their idea hit or they stayed with the company through all the ups and downs. And I think people look at Jeff Bezos now and they're like, oh my gosh. But people don't really remember when Amazon, all it did was just book deliveries. That's, That's all right. Amazon used to do. And even when he was trying to build that, it was tough. And I can't imagine how many times he went through it. One of the most famous stories in business school is uh, Milton Hershey, you know, Hershey, Hershey chocolate. Like he went bankrupt seven times before he actually made it with with Hershey. And so I, I think a lot of times, you know, we assume that wealth is just a given, but it's really a sacrifice. It's a major risk. And I just think that it's a risk that people should be able to take and they shouldn't be precluded from taking those risks. I couldn't agree with you more. And and while we're on that topic, let's talk for a minute about the accredited investor definition. Currently, in order to invest as an accredited investor, you have to have $200,000 in annual income, $300,000 if you're uh, with a spouse, or a million dollars in net worth. And the Securities and Exchange Commission could limit who is considered an accredited investor through changes to the underlying definition. So what are your thoughts on that? And how can we help to make sure that it gets expanded to include more people, not get limited? 
Oh, I, I definitely think that should be expanded. I mean, for when I got into the investment business, I understood the definition, but it still never made any sense to me. Mm-hmm. I get it that you don't want people to lose their life savings. I totally understand that. But at the same time, you know, if you have enough capital to invest, you should be free to do so. And you shouldn't be locked out of investments just because of some definition that, frankly, the SEC and Congress just have not updated in a very long time. Because you can make the argument with inflation that it should be $400,000 of earnings and $2 million of net worth. So that's why it's an arbitrary barrier to entry that I think time and I think that time has come, especially when you factor you factor in the innovations in crowdfunding and and, mm-hmm. and, and and stuff like that. There's no reason why you couldn't even have a pool of micro investors pool together for a for a investment share in in a fledgling Facebook or a fledgling Uber. Or, or whatever the case might be. I think that it being a blockade for wealthy individuals to get on the ground floor, I just, I think it's wrong. I think that should be opened up so so many other people can take advantages of it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And with the way that the rules changed in 2016 so that now anybody can invest through crowdfunding, as you mentioned, for as little as $50, there, there is a lot of ways now that people can diversify a portfolio and be able to minimize their risk. There's still, of course, risk, but they can do a little bit more with the money that they have. Right. Totally agree. And I think that's a good thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think we could do more. I mean, look, it, it's not the same issue, but, you know, for years and years and years, investment advisors has been, have been frankly, begging to increase the rule about when IRA funds have to start being taken at 70 and a half. And we're like, this is so arbitrary. People are living so much longer. Why are we doing this? Right. And it wasn't until uh, you know, Tax Cut and Jobs Act that it got extended to 72. Yeah. And so it was a breath of fresh air for so many retirees because they were just like, man, I don't really want to take this money, but they're making me take it out. From a governmental perspective, we have to give far more autonomy to individuals, especially when it comes to investments, because a lot of times the protecting the quote unquote protection features just really limit possibilities and outcomes. Yeah. Wow. I completely agree. And while we're talking about different regulatory things within the SEC or the 1202 provision, which was in 2015 under the PATH Act, it was the 100% capital gains exemption that was made permanent by President Obama, so that angel investors who hold investments for five years, they could actually get that 100% capital gains exemption. What are your thoughts on that? Well, actually, on that one, I haven't spent a lot of time focused on that one. I mean, the the biggest thing for me is I just want to see a situation where we're not doing anything to diminish activities with respect to investment and with and with distributions of capital. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think that if any any rule that we come up with, and we got plenty of them up here, unfortunately, (laughs) but any rule we come up with that diminishes the ability for capital to be deployed is not in the best interest of of our economy. It's not in the best interest of of the American people. And the people who end up really feeling the burden of that in a roundabout way are people at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. I could so that's kind of my that's kind of like my guiding principle on just about everything. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean for as risky as it is, you know, just having that 
ability to, if you're holding the stock for a long period of time and really helping these companies at the earliest stages, that's what's going to help them to grow. Right. 100%. It always does. And it not only helps the company grow, but I mean, look, it, it gets you in, it gets you in an amazing place, you know, where you're out, where you're allowed to really earn serious wealth and to change your life or even expand your life. And, and who knows what the possibilities are what, once that happens for an individual. I couldn't agree more. And also on the show today, we have the ACA's CEO, Pat Gowen, and he's going to give us a little bit more color on this legislation. What Marsh is referring to is QSBS, the Qualified Small Business Stock, and it's also known as IRC Section 1202. And and to your point, Congressman, what we know is within ACA, we have 15,000 accredited investors that put $650 million a year into three to 4,000 startups. We also know, based upon economic study, that that investment that they make for every $100,000, it leads to about 5.8 jobs and about 2.1 million in economic output. So we think this battle is behind us, but under Build Back Better, going back to the end of last summer, there was a pay for that came in there to eliminate the provisions on QSBS that CBO scored that about 5.7 billion over a 10-year period or 570 million. And our position was simply that, hey, 570 million could potentially put at jeopardy the 650 million that our investors are putting in each year that they could take that and put it into a less risky asset class and it would forego that uh, 21x multiplier on economic output so we hope that that battle is behind us but we wanted you to be aware of it in case it should arise in the future well i mean look i think it's somewhat behind us but you know just to be blunt you know my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, they just, they've never met, you know, they've never had an ability to pull money out of the economy that they don't like. But the problem is that what I try to educate them on is, is that if you actually give people more ability and more freedom away from, you know, either a tax or a cut in a deduction or whatever the case might be, that you actually get more money into the treasury as a result, because more economic activity breeds more tax revenue. It always does. And I think that sometimes when they look at these numbers in a static in a static model, they say, oh, well, if we cut this threshold, it raises this. But what they never look at with a dynamic store, which score, which is super in the weeds and in congressional budgeting, but dynamic scoring is essentially allows for you to take into account economic impacts on different policy proposals. And if you actually look at it on a dynamic basis, then half the things that they propose they would not do because they actually lead to lower economic growth overall and lower economic growth leads to lower tax revenue. And so, you know, I just tell them like, if you want more money in the government, then you actually want to lower rates, you want to have broader exemptions, so on and so forth. So you make capital far freer to move, which only, only, which only grows the economic pie, doesn't shrink it. Yep, completely agree. So we know we're in um, a midterm year. What do you think we can expect if we see Republicans take back control of the House? First thing is that you're not going to see just the reckless amount of spending. I think we're going to really do the best we can, considering you know Joe Biden's still going to be president, to get a lot of the COVID spending out. On the financial services side, we're looking at a ton of, of uh, regulatory reform issues that we think time has actually come. 
Some of it deals with accredited investors. We're looking at that policy right now. One that I'm working on with French Hill actually puts the Federal Reserve to a price stability mandate and gets rid of the employment mandate. Because, you know, since the employment mandate's been in place since 75 or 76, I think it's been in place since, I think it's 76, the Federal Reserve just has a poor track record of, of managing price stability. It, it just does. It doesn't work. The two mandates actually work in opposition to each other. And so I, I think that if you get to a price stability mandate, what that ends up doing is it gets the Fed focused on just stabilizing prices and interest rates, which, again, that only helps economic growth over the long term you don't have to deal with some of the volatility issues like we're kind of going experiencing right now. And so I think those are probably the two major things that can occur. As a conference, we're going to focus on on border security and things of that nature. Uh, we're definitely going to focus in on that. But it's, it's really just going to be a, a stop to a lot of the more progressive economic ideas and economic policies, which, you know, I've, I've kind of always said, that if the Democrats wanted to prove their economic agenda work worked, they had an opportunity during COVID to prove it. And the only thing we've seen is that it does not work. And so people do have to work. There has to be an exchange of labor for productivity and for value. That's just the way economies are built. And if you don't have that that balance to it, you end up, you know, really causing real damage that hurts people. And then, like I said, you know, earlier, who it really hurts people at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum yeah, because they don't have escape velocity to kind of hover above the carnage. They're right in the middle of it. Yeah. So you sit on the uh, House Committee for Small Business. Why did you mm-hmm. want to join this committee and tell us about some of your work on that? Well, I really wanted to join financial services. <laughs> so <laughs> full disclosure, I wanted to be on financial services. But uh, when when they were going through the process, Maxine Waters cut the size of the committee down so there wasn't enough slots for me to get on. And so then the backup plan was small business. And I think that going on a small business committee has actually been really good. I mean, obviously, our focus is directly the SBA. That's kind of the agency we we manage. And I think that uh, it's been helpful to see some of the abilities of SBA understanding completely the deficiencies of the SBA and also looking at some of the SBA's existing programs and trying to find new ways to get creative to help people really begin to at least build wealth and mass wealth and get access to capital, so on and so forth. So that's that's kind of the story of how I, how I got on there. But I think it's been worthwhile. But I, I'm looking forward to being on the Financial Services Committee. And can you share with us some of the things to look out for on the committee agenda if the Republicans win the majority in 22? You talk about financial services or just overall? Overall. Specific to financial services, like I said, I think we're definitely going to be looking at accredited investors about ways to open that up. I think we're going to be looking at uh, some uh, shareholder proxy reforms because ESG policy is a real issue, real problem. We're going to look at some issues dealing with, in my view, we're probably going to definitely be taking a hard, long look at Secretary uh, Gensler and, or Commissioner Gensler, whichever title he has. I always forget it, all the different agencies, do it, whether they're a commissioner or a secretary, whatever. But we're going to be looking at, at, at his agency. I'm also a guy, like I have the bill along with Ted Cruz in the Senate to abolish the CFPB. I, I think CFPB is, first of all, I think it's unconstitutional because they don't have to report to Congress. And I think that that's just doesn't make any sense at all. And then number two, you know, they raise their money by just leveraging fines on companies. 
and they don't have any accountability and no oversight. So that makes no sense, you know, but I think we're going to have to do things to rein those in. Uh, we're looking at potential reforms to Dodd-Frank. Obviously, you have the crypto markets. I think there's some bills that are trying to get mobilized right now on stablecoin. We'll see where that goes. But obviously, we're going to be looking into cryptocurrency, stable coins, and trying to have an appropriate legislation, regulatory environment there and not an, overburdening, not an overbearing one. And then the last part is just doing everything we can to unleash capital. Kind of that, kind of some of that is Dodd-Frank. I think there's some reforms in Dodd-Frank that are long overdue because for small businesses in particular, they just don't have banking relationships. And the reason why that is, is because the number of banks in the United States has diminished since, the, since Dodd-Frank was passed. And so I think, you know, there might be an ability to make some some headway and some reforms to Dodd-Frank to allow community banking in the United States to have a renaissance and a resurgence. Wow, that's a lot on the agenda. And we could have a whole talk just about cryptocurrency and all the stuff that's going on there. Mm-hmm. For our listeners, what is CFPB? The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It was created under Dodd-Frank. This was like Elizabeth Warren's pet project. Because she needed, she said that there had to be some agency whose sole focus was to hold the companies accountable. And the only way they could do that is if they did not have to report to Congress. So obviously, in the after the you know the TARP program was passed, they went through Dodd Frank and you know this behemoth of a financial regulatory policy included one of the worst agencies ever created. And they they really they operate unchecked, so they just the only th- the only real check is that the president appoints the commissioner mm-hmm. and the head. Of, so you know, basically during President Trump's time, CFPB was in a standstill mode because the president was like, "No, we don't want you running around harassing companies when we need well when the desire of the United States is for our companies to thrive and flourish. And if if a company's engaged in criminal behavior or fraudulent behavior." We have ample laws on the books to govern that. We don't need another agency doing spot audits and then, you know, leaking it to the press and doing all this other foolishness so they can leverage fees. And it's it's a real problem. So I think that's an agency that needs to go. I know Senator Warren completely disagrees with me, but I don't really care. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have an efficient economy where businesses are focused on business, then you limit the ability for them to grow. You limit the ability for their employer employees to make more money. And it just has real down, it has real effects on the headwinds of our economy. Mm-hmm. So I know we're running out of time and this has been such a great conversation. I would love to know your thoughts about the, you mentioned ESG. Mm-hmm. We're hearing a little bit on both sides about how, yes, we, we think this is necessary, in, but also that it could become a burden to entrepreneurs to have to fit into a certain box. What are your thoughts? That ESG is, is necessary? Or just that people wanted to have a, a way to track or a way to kind of... No, yeah. I think anybody who thinks that I think is wrong. I'm totally opposed to it. I actually think it's... And I'm now I'm just going to be 100% with you guys. I think ESG policy really is... I think it's liberal fascism in economic markets. You're going to have a bunch of policymakers or politicians or policymakers essentially create the goalposts 
around what what's acceptable from a climate footprint or a carbon footprint, what's acceptable from a governance model. No, that's because then what happens is the goalposts always move. And if you're a business, how can you actually have some reliance on what the government's going to deem important at any particular time? Mm-hmm. That is that's all subjective information. It's not material financial information. And I think it has no place in the investment world at all. And I know why people might say like, oh, we want to know these things because, you know, people might want to invest in a company that's quote unquote green. So how do I get that information? Well, you're going to have to find that information on your own accord. The federal government requiring disclosures, which basically is the Gensler proposed rule, is outrageous. And I think what you end up what you end up doing is you have companies who then focus in real time and man hours and capital and compliance over this stuff. And it takes away from the business and it takes capital away from good businesses because somebody can deem through some societal political standpoint that it's not the best investment risk. Look no further than oil and gas in Europe or nuclear in the United States or oil and and, and stuff like that. Those industries which have a definite payout model, a definite growth model, are hindered in a financial world because of this this pseudo thought process that you have to measure their carbon footprints and that they're not deemed to be equitable or sustainable investments. I think it's I think it's completely wrong. Okay, great. Well, in case, glad- in case you wanted to know my opinion, there is. <laughs> I'm so glad to get your opinion on that. Thank you so much, Congressman Donald, for being with us today. Really appreciate your time and your thoughts. And we will be watching you over the next several years. Maybe someday we'll even see President Donald's. (laughs) You know what? Only if that's what the voters want. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks a lot for your time. Really appreciate it, Congressman. All right. Anytime. This episode of the Angel Next Door podcast is brought to you by the ACA Anne and Bill Payne Angel University. So what is the Angel University? Well, it's built to deliver cutting edge insights, practical tips, and lessons learned for early stage investors. There are two tracks. We have the Angel Investing Basics, which include a fundamentals class, due diligence, term sheet basics, valuation, and risks. And then we also have an angel investing deeper dive, which includes advanced capitalization tables, angel returns and portfolio strategy, startup boards, and angel exit strategies. Most of these classes are online, and sometimes you can find in-person versions alongside our events. For more information, you can simply go to the ACA's website at angelcapitalassociation.org. The Angel Next Door podcast is informational and not intended to serve as legal, tax, accounting, or investing advice. Our speakers and hosts are thoughtfully selected for their educational value, but their opinions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the Angel Capital Association, and the Angel Capital Association does not specifically endorse the use of presenters' products or services. Listeners of the podcast should consult their own tax, investing, legal, or accounting advisors before making important financial decisions. All warranties, including accuracy, completeness, and suitability for specific purpose, are disclaimed.